Hi there, and welcome to One Body, One Life, proudly sponsored by Jamae's Fine Foods. I'm Vicky Nguyen, and I'm on a personal mission to live to 120, and I would absolutely love to take you on this journey with me. This fortnightly show is focused on longevity and understanding how we can all live longer and stronger through diet, exercise, lifestyle, nutrition, and so on. Each episode, we will uncover tips and tricks to living your healthiest and happiest life for as long as physically possible. I'll be chatting to the experts as well as people who have defied the odds and explore various treatments and modalities to help us all reach optimal wellness. So today we get to speak to one of the creators of The Natural Nutritionist, Steph Lowe. Steph aspires to spread a positive message on the benefits of eating real foods. In addition to her mentoring programs offered by The Natural Nutritionist, Steph also has her own health food podcast called The Real Food Real. Her mentorship programs extend far beyond the basics of real food and weight loss as she specializes in gut health, preconception and pregnancy care. As a sports nutritionist, author and triathlete herself, Steph knows how important it is to have a healthy and balanced diet. And especially now, given what's happening globally, um, nutrition is such an important part of our lives and so many people are interested in it. So welcome to the show, Steph. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Thanks for being available. I know um, I mean, we're all working from home at the moment, so we're lucky. I think <laughs> we got you at a good time. So, um, I mean, I've always believed in that ethos that, you know, food should be med- food is medicine. Um, so tell us about um, what nutrition and, I mean, obviously gut health is a really important focus for me, particularly because I also had a leaky gut many, many years ago. Um, so tell us about what you do and the, the difference between micro and macro nutrition. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'm a nutritionist and I've been doing this for a long time now. Like the Natural Nutritionist um, was sort of launched in 2011, but, you know, I've been working in the space and certainly in the industry for well over a decade now. And I think it's really important to have that definition because we are really, I guess, more comfortable talking about macronutrients, which are our carbohydrates, our proteins and our fats. Um, but of course, there can be a lot of confusion there when we look at what is a whole food diet, you know, versus a more Western template. And then micronutrients are, you know, obviously all the nutrients that sit within those three categories. So, you know, whether we're looking at things like zinc or B12, you know, other vitamins as well that we really need to understand, you know, right now, certainly things like vitamin C are becoming a lot more popular and, and certainly very important. So just understanding how we can get, yeah, that food is medicine approach, certainly right now, but definitely long term as well. Absolutely. I noticed in your in the intro I spoke about you and gut health and your preconception and pregnancy care. So is that a big part of your focus? Yeah, it certainly has become more recently. Um Actually, since I became a mother myself, a lot of my audience are really interested in following that journey. And, yeah, our requirements are always changing. You know, certainly, um, you know, one side of my business is working with athletes and we do a lot of sort of low-carb and uh, metabolic efficiency work there. But then, of course, with children, certainly in preconception, you know, pregnancy, breastfeeding, there's lots of other considerations where we do need to change our macronutrients and certainly usually looks like, you know, changing the the volume of carbohydrates we eat, but always prioritizing whole food carbohydrates because, you know, that's where we've gone really wrong. If we look at a more Western food pyramid or our conventional guidelines up to this point in time. Absolutely. So that um, traditional, that old food pyramid, it's, it's, 
so different really, isn't it, now to what the way most people eat? Because, I mean, at the bottom of that triangle used to be like carbohydrates, right? <laughs> and now it's like most people are like, oh, avoid carbs. There's that whole, you know, I, I don't guess it's a myth really. I don't know. What's your thoughts on that with regards to avoiding carbohydrates? Well, certainly we need to be a little bit more specific than that because this is where a lot of the confusion is. Um, I think certainly avoiding refined carbohydrates is a good goal for everyone because these are food-like products. You know, they have a pretty high degree of human intervention, which always means that they have a low degree of nutrient density. And that's not what we should be looking for in our food. But then, of course, plants are carbohydrates, vegetables are carbohydrates. And these are definitely what we should be um, building the bulk of our plate from the predominant um, food group should be plants. So, of course, there's a big difference between refined carbohydrates and whole food carbohydrates, which looks like plants, but also things like fruit, um, and then our more complex carbohydrates, which could be things like sweet potato, which, of course, is a vegetable, but more of those um, gluten-free grains, which can suit a lot of people like buckwheat or even some basmati rice your focus for yourself also obviously as a nutritionist and a, and a triathlete I mean you want to try and get foods across the board covering all those different food groups but is eating raw something you'd recommend for people or does it depend on their stomach acidity and other factors as well mm-hmm. yeah it's really individual like I think um certainly if you know you go back in time with your history around leaky gut and I do work with a lot of clients who have gut issues they largely can't tolerate very much raw at all. You know, for some people, we might be giving them a, you know, a budget per se of about 20% raw food and 80% need to be really well cooked, like in the slow cooker, you know, on the stove, um, stews and even, you know, soups and things like that because they don't have the digestive capacity. They don't have that ability to break down raw food. And and if they do try and consume raw food and certainly in excess, that can really contribute to a lot of the more gastrointestinal symptoms that we're very familiar with. So I think in, in that situation, no, I wouldn't be recommending raw food very much at all. But then, of course, if someone's really robust and their gut health is great, then, yeah, having things like salads is really incredible because they're getting optimal nutrients from their food but they've got the optimal capacity to digest break down and absorb that food absolutely yeah I know um, I've got a couple of friends and when they eat raw salads for example they get quite bloated and their stomach hurts and like what you said I mean obviously their gut just can't break all that down it's too too it's too difficult right they need a lot of digestive enzymes and good no it's, it's a number of different factors like you know it's very individual but essentially it's starts, I believe, by looking at our nervous system. So a lot of people, it, it might look like it's the raw food, like your friends that you mentioned, but if if they're not taking time to like look at their food, which is that first stimulus to tell your body to start producing digestive enzymes and bile, if you're then not chewing your food like 20 times per mouthful, and certainly if you are feeling stressed or eating in a stressed state, you'll be promoting this sympathetic dominance. And, and that's not where digestion occurs. You know, digest, digestion occurs when that parasympathetic nervous system is predominant or supported. So bloating can be, yeah, certainly due to certain foods that require more bile or more enzymes, but definitely if we're not eating mindfully. And people go a little bit woo-woo about mindful eating or they ignore it, but it really is acknowledging how to support your nervous system to optimize bile and 
digestive enzyme production. And that's way up in the in the journey before we get to like the small intestine and the large intestine where those ecosystems, most of our microbes live. Exactly. So talk to us about, so obviously when food enters the mouth, like you said, you look at the food first, it stimulates the enzymes. Do you want to talk to us about that process of how we, I guess, assimilate food into our bodies? Yeah. So we we used to say um, digestion starts in the mouth, but really now digestion starts with sight. So it is that moment to look at your food and that for a lot of people, taking a few deep breaths to bring them into that parasympathetic nervous system state, like the breath is the pathway there. So having some space and then chewing 20 times per mouthful, especially is where we produce amylase, the enzyme that digests carbohydrates. So remember I said that you know plants, the vegetables and fruit, these are carbohydrates as well. So if we're having those in every meal, which we should be, then we need to be really chewing our foods so that we've got enough amylase to break down carbohydrates. And that process largely occurs in the mouth, very high up the process. Um, and if we don't chew our food properly, yeah, a lot of people experience bloating or it might be, you know, gas or IBS symptoms like changes in their bowel motions. And a lot of that, like it's quite surprising how many benefits can be obtained by practicing just a few of those little strategies. And so the third one I would add to that is to try not to drink too much water with a meal. Like I'm not into sort of separating out your meals or anything too extreme like that, but if you're having heaps of fluid, then you'll dilute your enzymes, your bile, and you might have a similar problem. So it's sips of water only with a meal, and you want to make sure that you're hydrated between at the meal so that you don't have to be, you know, on water right before you eat. Exactly. Yeah, I find I can't drink water with a meal and some people look at me weird like, would you like a drink? And I'm like, no, I just, I don't drink and eat. It just doesn't work for my body. But, and so once this, the food hits the gut, then what happens? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, like along the way, like we know there are microbes all the way along. Like we've got many little ecosystems all the way down the general spine. So when we talk about the microbiome, you know, we tend to refer to that that large intestine, which is where those trillions of microbes live. So part of digestion, yeah, you mentioned the word flora, like you could use the word probiotics or microbes or ecosystem or microbiome. Like, yeah, really making sure we've got this beautiful ecosystem. I like the analogy of that flourishing rains with lots of different species, high diversity, really alive and well. That's essential because those microbes are in charge of breaking down the food that, you know, arrives at the large intestine and allowing you to get more nutrients out of the food that you eat. So the saying goes, you are what you eat but you also are what you digest yes, and absorb. Absolutely. And I recognize that when I was diagnosed with leaky gut, um, I didn't get a period for two years. So I was like, what, what's going on? And I wasn't on the pill or anything like that. And it was just a case of having leaky gut. And my body obviously wasn't nourished. This was when I was a teenager. But obviously what happens is that nutrients escape. Is that what happens into the bloodstream and they don't nourish the body the correct way? Yeah, essentially they leak out if to simplify it. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't digesting. I wasn't getting the nutrients, even though I was eating the right food. Leaky 
leaky gut just meant that everything was kind of escaping. So you're right. It's so true. You are what you digest. And um, talk to us about how much, like with the metabolism, for example, I mean, obviously some people have got faster metabolism than others. Is that genetic? Does genetics dictate that or is it more just based on the flora in the bowel? or Well, another analogy to think about is that genetics load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger, right? So, yeah, there's always going to be a pretty small genetic component, um, but it's the expression of the genes that are more important. So, you know, you, you could have certain genes that would indicate, yeah, that you might be um, slower metabolically, but what you do can either perpetuate those genes or essentially counteract those, right? So yes, there is a genetic component, but um, you know, nearly everyone's probably heard the saying around them that, you know, a low calorie diet can slow down your metabolism. This is what's really interesting. If we look back at our conventional weight loss conversation, it's, it was always eat less, move more. And we're essentially putting patients, clients, ourselves into starvation. And what happens is you will slow down your metabolic rate because you haven't got this really high thermic effect of food, which is what your metabolism does and the energy it uses when you're breaking down beautiful whole foods. And that actually will speed up your metabolism. So the natural opposite is true when you're not eating, when you're in that starvation mode, you know, you're, you're, you're actually not burning as many calories, your body starts to slow down. And if it does predict that, there's like this famine occurring, then you'll start to store body fat rather than burning it. The other part of that conversation is that conventionally these lower calorie approaches were high in carbohydrates. Now, that's a really sad irony because if you're eating too many carbs, you won't be burning fat either because of the presence of the hormone insulin, the fat storage hormone insulin. So we've had it wrong, whereas speeding up your metabolism is certainly a function of eating enough to support your goal. But for a lot of people, it's actually not so much about the metabolic rate, but it's the predominant fuel source. So being able to burn fat as a source of fuel, so dietary fat and body fat, that concept of becoming more fat adapted or more metabolically efficient, for a lot of people is what finally transforms their metabolism because burning sugar is that inflammatory state that we want to avoid it also means we're bound by our appetite our cravings you know 330 itis it's a really unfortunate this roller coaster of you know blood sugar and emotions and the opposite is true when we can burn fat so we can for a lot of people it's how they feel great from a long-term point of view because it's so anti-inflammatory but um, for those that have a weight loss goal it's quite life-changing because you don't have to eat less you just need to change the the macros essentially, like the carbs more yes. than anything. Interesting. And so does um, good, I mean, obviously maintaining good flora helps maintain a good metabolism, but also healthy weight. What can people take or are there certain foods that people can eat to assist gut flora production? Yeah, for sure. So it definitely starts with prebiotics and not everyone's as familiar with prebiotics because most of us are familiar with the probiotics, but these prebiotics are essentially the food that then feed your flora or feed your probiotics. Right. So certainly that's one of the big reasons why we want to eat a whole food plant predominant diet because the fiber is what your microbes love. Um, prebiotic, like more specific examples are things like onions, garlic, you know, asparagus, artichoke, dandelion greens, and then there's resistant starch, which comes from 
cooked and cooled, white rice like basmati, sweet potato, white potatoes, you know, overnight oats. So these are our more complex carbohydrates, but because of the nature of how they've been prepared, their digestion is essentially delayed until the large intestine. So it's a really beautiful fuel source for these microbes that inhabit the large intestine. So, yeah, prebiotics are number one. And then, of course, yeah, there are culture-based foods that are known as fermented foods or beverages, probiotics again. You know, I love fermented vegetables because they're another way to get more vegetables on our plate. You might like sauerkraut or kimchi or fermented beetroot. There's lots of other options, whether it's a coconut yogurt that contains live cultures. I'm not a massive fan of kombucha. I know it's so vogue these days, but we do need to acknowledge that it's a yeast. So it's not really what we're trying to put in our rainforest. It's a supplemental part. So, you know, 30 mils once or twice a week is fine, but not these 330 mil bottles that we see being yes. sold and, you know, drunk every day. We don't need that much yeast. Yes, yeah, exactly. I actually <laughs> um, can't stomach kombucha. I can't either. It makes yeah. me so bloated, even yes. for someone that's got fantastic gut health. Well, me too. <laughs> I know that by testing. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. had my test done. It makes me so bloated. I can't imagine how most people are feeling, especially if they are a little bit dysbiotic or leaky. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess it's a, a soft drink alternative for those people that like fizzy drinks really, mm. isn't it? What about the um, probiotics that you can buy like over the counter? Is there a place for those? A little complicated in that up until a couple of years ago, when we looked at what we knew about the gut, what we knew about the microbiome, we didn't know very much. <laughs> we only thought there was a number of strains. Like the really common ones we hear about are like lactobacillus and bifido. And these are the strains mostly that we see in the store-bought probiotics because we thought really that was all we had. Now with new testing and metagenomic sequencing and companies like Microba and Biome globally, we, we are uncovering like 500, 600 thousands of new species. So we're kind of realizing that maybe we don't need these, just these particular strains that we've been popping in pills all along. And that's not to say that you can't do that. But the other part of the story is, you know, what we're understanding is specifically these two strains, they are predominantly what we call transient strains. So for a lot of people, adults, they don't colonize, so they don't, go to the, you know, they don't live in the gut. They don't stay there. They certainly play an important role from end to end. So that's why consuming them via foods and beverages can be really important. And they certainly need to pass through the gastrointestinal tract. But I think we've just had it a little bit wrong in that the view has been, yeah, I need to take this capsule because that means that this bacteria is going to live inside my gut. And that's not actually what happens. With all of the testing and the metagenomic sequencing that we're now doing, we are uncovering pretty incredible strains. And I know that companies are trying to work out how to, you know, package them up and put them in a capsule or a powder and sell them um, because of, of how beneficial they are to our health and how anti-inflammatory they are in terms of the metabolites they produce. But yeah, I, I just don't think that we necessarily need to be spending a lot of money on capsules because it might not be, or powders, it might not be the strain that we need. Certainly post-antibiotics can be really helpful to get the right product for you. But long-term, it's a really expensive strategy that might not always be creating the result that you're after. A really cost-effective food-based strategy is, yeah, via what we've just discussed around 
including those foods or beverages. Excellent. Okay. But what about how can people determine their level of gut health? Is it typically the way they feel or are there specific tests that you'd recommend? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the big one that you can definitely start with, which is super basic um, on your own, is a simple transit time test. So it's known as the sesame seed challenge. So you simply mix up like a teaspoon of sesame seeds in a glass of water and you drink it. And you have a look at when it comes out the other end because it's really obvious in your stool. <laughs> okay. If it's if it's quicker, like shorter than 24 hours or longer than 48, you've got a problem with your transit time. So that can tell you what you need to sort of look at either way. Um, it, it's not a diagnostic strategy, but it can certainly give you a bit of an idea around whether you do have quote unquote normal bowel motions or whether you do have a more diarrhea picture or a constipation type picture. But certainly with my clients, anyone that can um, do the testing I mentioned, it's the metagenomic sequencing. So it's not culturing your stool for anyone that's had like a stool test or like a parasite test with their doctor before. It's quite different in that it's a swab and the like it's the genetics. So it's looking at the what genes are present in that stool, which is a reflection of what microbes are living in your gut. And it really does tell us the health of the person, of the patient, of the client, because it's going to give us that full snapshot as to one, what lives in their gut, but two, what they're doing. So what those microbes are doing, whether they're producing you know, anti-inflammatory metabolites or pro-inflammatory metabolites. And, and certainly that has huge you know, positive or negative impacts on our health. And it will also measure diversity. So we know that your, you know, your rainforest, if it is that flourishing, beautiful rainforest, high diversity, lots of different species and high numbers of each of those species and that is correlated with good to great health. Now, clients of mine with low diversity, for whatever reason, if it was previous antibiotic exposure, you know, the pill in my female clients, stress, um, toxin exposure, poor food choices, um, recreational drugs, all of the above, low diversity will always see low health so it might be gastrointestinal symptoms it might be obvious IBS but it can be so systemic because we know that the microbiome our gut controls nearly everything so it could be a skin rash it could be a mood issue like anxiety or depression it could be inflamed joints but there's lots of different things that we need to explore it's not always a typical gastrointestinal symptom but yes certainly improving your diversity is a big part of re-establishing that healthy microbiome. Absolutely. It's so important. I mean, gut health is everything. I know the Japanese think, you know, there's three main areas of the body, which, you know, it's the brain, it's the heart and the gut. And the gut is probably one of the most important because that's what's fueling the rest of the body, right? That's what fuels the blood and the cells and everything. That's what, that's what we need, a good, healthy functioning gut in order to, to nourish ourselves and to, um, to reproduce healthy cells. So that's interesting. So what about, so, I mean, obviously people notice, I mean, some people notice that those symptoms of, like you're saying, they might have um, an issue with, um, bloatedness or bowel movements, etc., and then other people might might be presented differently. Is it because of the vagus nerve that runs in from the brain into the gut is that part of that reason why people who also have poor or low gut, gut flora there's a relationship between concentration or moods as well? Mm. Yeah, so I think this is a really underappreciated area of science, although it's certainly being investigated quite significantly now, which is incredible to see. So, yeah, we know that. The gut is called the second brain, right? So our, our brain, 
is connected to the gut via the vagus nerve. And we can think of this as being like this information superhighway where the brain talks to the gut and the gut talks to the brain. So yes, it goes both ways. So if we're eating quality food, which is then, let's say, feeding pro-inflammatory microbes, then those inflammatory compounds are traveling up the vagus nerve into the brain, then, yeah, we can have a leaky brain or we can have a dysbiotic brain. And that's certainly what we're looking at for the tr- part of the treatment for mental health issues, which I think is incredible because we clearly haven't solved that yet because we've been a little bit off track. Um, but it goes the other way as well. So, you know, certainly how you feel mentally can impact your gut. So that's where another part of that sort of stress conversation is, where it's really important important to be nourishing your nervous system as well. Um, definitely now with what's going on globally, especially if you do have gut issues, but then everyone needs to be understanding that relationship between the nervous system and our gut. You know, my husband's a chiropractor, so just a little bit of a side note, but speaking about that, that you know, that vagus nerve, we've got to think about the neural innovation from the spine into the gut as well. So even things like posture and exercise are all going to be really important so that our nerves are innovating our gut properly, communicating with our brain properly so that we can feel great digestively, you know, mentally, emotionally. And then, of course, our immune system. You know, we know that 80% of our immune system is in our gut. So we're really focusing on this now. And it's hard to see a virus help people become, you know, I guess, prioritize their health finally. But I do think that one of the amazing benefits out of this global pandemic is that people are going to start to look after themselves more. And isn't that fantastic in the long term? Which brings us to the next topic on immunity. So what type, I mean, obviously most people are very familiar with, um, you know, some immune boosting foods such as, um, I mean, you can correct me here, but like garlic, turmeric, um, mm. onions, you know, antioxidant rich foods. But what, what do you recommend to help boost people's immunity? Yeah, I mean, it has to start with the diet. So when you eat a whole food plant predominant diet, you're going to get a lot of like great natural vitamin C, antioxidants. So, you know, getting things like dark leafy greens, berries and citrus fruit. So looking at what's on every plate so that you're getting that whole food diet as a priority. And, you know, what's happening at the moment with everyone's rituals being changed or their routines differing, working from home. Like a lot of people are struggling to find, um, I guess, meal times and to, to not snack and graze and eat sugar. And the irony there is that, you know, sugar is going to suppress your immune system. So you've got to start by nourishing your body and eating those really beautiful meals to cooking poor choices as the day goes on. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But I love garlic. I think raw garlic is an incredible ingredient. I mean, if you're treating the gut, you need quite a lot. Like you might need two cloves twice a day. But for most people, you know, that's not the kind of volume that you need, but you might simply really finely dice some raw garlic in your salad dressing or make a pesto for your zucchini pasta. It is a natural antimicrobial. So these are like nature's antibiotics. They support the gut and they don't have the detrimental impact that antibiotics do on or can have on our Absolutely. So what do you recommend? Like some little things that people can incorporate into the day. I mean, I take garlic juice in the morning, but, um, and there's a whole heap of things that I do, but what suggestions do you have for people that are kind of new to this? Like you said, everyone's at home now with extra time on their hands and they are focusing a bit more on how to be healthy holistically and particularly looking at what to do to stay strong and, and healthy. Yeah. I mean, secondary to the diet, I'd certainly be looking right now at, um, 
what's happening, like if you are getting any sun, what's interesting about social distancing and certainly working from home is that a lot of us aren't really seeing the sun at all between 10 and 3. This is an issue because we know like vitamin D is so popular when it comes to bones, but its biggest role is immune function, right? So we absolutely can't be forgetting about our vitamin D levels and it's really hard to eat in our food. We get really small amounts in eggs and really small amounts in like a cod liver oil supplement or something like that, but it really largely comes from the sun. Now, at least in Australia and where I live in Melbourne, we're also moving into winter. So we've got even more of a focus now to not get vitamin D deficient because we need it more than ever. So certainly getting out in the sun between 10 and 3, this is where the UV rays come through the atmosphere at the right time to be absorbed through the skin, to be able to allow our body to, to have adequate D levels. And many people are going to need to supplement. So, you know, but it all depends on your blood test, which you're probably not going to get done now because we don't want to overwhelm the medical system. So staying with a fairly conservative, you know, dose of say 1,000 to 3,000 international units per day of vitamin D, so usually one to three capsules or one to three sprays, can be really helpful depending on where you live and what you're doing. But again, most of us are indoors, so we can't forget about vitamin D. Zinc is another one. Everyone knows of zinc from an immune point of view. Zinc's interesting to me as well because it's really important for our skin. And remember that our skin is our frontline defense to microbes and to viruses. So having an adequate zinc intake is really important. So if you if you do eat animals, then, yep, it's easy to do via beef and lamb and organ meat. Certainly if you're plant-based, it's possible, but you need to have a much greater focus on pumpkin seeds and dark leafy greens and lentils and legumes. So making sure that you are really conscious of your zinc-based foods. And then, of course, you know, depending on where you're at, maybe you leave this one to if you work with a practitioner. Um, but a lot of my clients are supplementing with zinc between sort of 15 to 30 milligrams a day. Again, quite conservative, focusing on the diet first. Um, and without, you know, without blood tests, it's best not to jump into the, to the, you know, the big, um, big milligrams per day. Um, and then, you know, probably the last would be vitamin C. We can definitely do it from our food, um, but I'm personally taking extra vitamin C at the moment. There's a lot of controversy about this online at the moment. Like the skeptics are like, oh my God, you know, vitamin C is not going to cure Corona. And that's not what I'm saying. So no. if we don't know what the cure is, if we, did, we wouldn't have the global pandemic. Exactly. We've only just started researching <laughs> this virus. It's a completely new strain. Exactly. But does supporting our immune system or is that ever going to be harmful? No. So let's support our immune system. Make sure that we are really getting vitamin C from whole foods. So again, your greens, your berries, your citrus, but get a vitamin C powder and, you know, take a teaspoon a day, take a thousand milligrams or 2000 milligrams a day. It's not an excess dose. You shouldn't get any gastrointestinal symptoms from taking that much. If you do just split your dosage across the day, but it's, it's huge. Like they're using intravenous vitamin C in clinical trials in China, in hospitals in the US. Like it's not harmful for us and it can't help. In fact, I think we're going to find that it's a huge part of the treatment as okay. well. That's amazing. And what about, I mean, I know medicinal mushrooms are trending as well now. Yeah, definitely. So there's quite a few that you can take. It depends on the focus. Like I guess the most popular from an immune standpoint is reishi. Um, and, and I mean, that's well-researched in, in the scientific literature. It's so incredible for 
natural immune support, you need about three grams twice a day. So you might split that up, mix it in with your vitamin C powder morning and night. Um, shiitake is another great one. Um, some, some people use like cordyceps or shaga. It really depends on the individual and each of the particular mushroom is going to have additional benefits. So, you know, it might be, yes, you need some immune support, but you also need some nervous system support and that can help you direct which one you choose. Don't take all four. <laughs> you know, it's just about finding one that, that really benefits you that maybe addresses other symptoms that you need support with. Um, from a nervous system point of view, though, if you're feeling really anxious or if you do have a lot of the pressures of COVID-19, then ashwagandha is incredible. Um, very safe to take. Um, I just start a little more gradual with that one. You know, you might do a, a day or even less than half a flat teaspoon to start and just gradual like anything. We don't need to sort of jump in the deep end and start throwing in, you know, six supplements or anything like that. But what we've shared today should give you like, you know, a to think about what you might need to complement your whole food diet. Love that. And what about finally um, fats, the type of fats? I mean, there's so many um, fats, you know, coconut oil and the hemp seed oil and, you know, the mono and poly and all that. Talk to us about fats and whether we should be including those into the diet as well. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Fats are so, so essential. I mean, the, the biggest fat we should be focusing on are our omega-3s and these are our anti-inflammatory fats. Like, Obviously, we know that inflammation is, is huge. It's a really big issue, um, especially in the Western world. So the diet is going to make some, some huge inroads there to avoid these inflammatory-based foods. So our omega-3s we're going to find from olive oil, oily fish, olives, nuts, seeds, avocado. Yeah, we need some of these in every meal to help create that anti-inflammatory environment to support our blood sugar, to prevent things like cravings and the desire for sugar, like we spoke about earlier. What we want to avoid, though, of course, are any of the high omega-6 fats that are very refined in nature. So not a lot of people eat these oils these days, but certainly through the 80s, the canola oil and the safflower oil and the really refined sunflower oil, that we, we have a big issue with these oils as a nutritionist because they're so high in omega-6 that they create more inflammation in the body. They're also expelled using, you know, chemical, like just toxic ingredients. They're really not good for us. So we're looking for whole food and, yes, certainly a diet high in omega-3 is the priority. We can supplement that with smaller amounts of good quality saturated fats like our coconut oil, our grass-fed butter, our ghee, and our animal fats, but only usually a fairly small amount to complement a predominantly omega-3-rich diet. And what about protein powders for vegans? Yeah, look, I, I, I have actually enjoy protein powders. I think we need protein with every meal, right? We need at least a palm with every meal. That might be easy to do at lunch and dinner where you have a palm of fish. The equivalent would be three eggs or four eggs for a male at lunch. If you're into smoothies, which I think is, is a great way to start the day, get plenty of nutrients in, um, a protein powder can be really beautiful here to make sure that that smoothie is very well-rounded and balanced in our macronutrients. So, yeah, like a, a plant-based protein powder that isn't artificially sweetened. So you might see ingredients like vanilla bean or stevia or monk fruit extract. 
that really should contain minimal ingredients. Um, that, you know, two tablespoons or three tablespoons, depending on the product, will give you about 20 grams of protein, which is a really beautiful goal to make sure you've got that satiety macronutrient included in your meal as well. I don't think you need to add it in, like as in you're having three meals and you're already getting your three serves of protein. I don't think you need more on top of that necessarily, unless of course you've you know, you're training a lot, you've got different goals, <laughs> bodybuilding, et cetera. Yeah. For most of us, we don't need to add it in, but it can certainly go into one of our meals and, and is adding diversity to people that are more plant-based that don't have as many options um, in that sort of really good quality protein source. Awesome. So you did mention about breakfast smoothies. I love having a juice mm. or a smoothie in the morning, but what's your, t- I mean, some people say it's better to chew your food, you know, that's the best way, but I, I agree with you that, you know, you can get so many more nutrients into a smoothie or a juice um, and it's an, a quick and easy way to, to get them in. But what's your thinking regarding that, like eating a meal compared to having a juice or a smoothie? Yeah, I mean, juice, I have an issue with juices if the fiber's lost. It really depends on how you're juicing it. Because a lot of the amazing, um, you know, machines these days will make sure that you're not losing all the fiber. So that, that's one thing to, to keep in mind. But um, certainly a smoothie, I'm not talking about what you buy from the food court, which is full of sugar or heaps of fruit, dates and so on. I'm talking about something that you make yourself that you've got, you know, you've got vegetables in there. So it might be frozen zucchini or frozen spinach. Use berries for the sweetness, for the antioxidants, healthy fats from chia seeds or nut butter or avocado, your protein powder. Really, really nutrient-dense, great for your blood sugar, a beautiful way to start the day, but you just drink it slowly. Like You don't scalp like a glass of water because then you'll lose your hunger signals, your ghrelin won't have time, like your hormones, the tardy hormones won't have kicked in and you'll probably think that you're still hungry. And I hear it from a lot of people, but if you sip your smoothie slowly and take just as long to drink that as you would to take to eat an omelette, then yeah, yeah, you're getting the best of both worlds. And that's um, that's interesting you say that. And that's exactly, I agree with you because I know with my leaky gut, what I had when I was a teenager, I used to eat my meals so quickly. I was working three jobs and, you know, I'd literally just scoff my meals down in between work. And I think that was a big contributor to having leaky gut. So you're right, sitting consciously and eating and enjoying and tasting every single mouthful is such a good way to nourish yourself. And um, yeah, I think you're right as well regarding the, I mean, in my experience, I know if I eat something a lot slower or drink it slower, then you you are going to feel fuller and not so like rather than drinking it fast and then still feeling hungry kind of thing. So um, Mm. that conscious consumption is so important, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's also why we have the 20 minute rule where you can't, you're not allowed a second helping unless you've waited 20 minutes, Like you've got to give your body time to register that it's full. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. I've got one last question for you. So um, I interviewed Nick Butner from the Blue Zones and he was talking about the nine commonalities of people who live the longest and they practice the Hara Hachibu where they don't eat. Yeah, definitely. Like 80, 20 for most things, I think. 80% full. You know, like I think... That's very behavioral and a lot of people, it's like totally childhood orientated. Yeah. Everyone says, you know, I didn't, I wasn't allowed to leave the table once I'd finished my place and so on and so forth. So for a lot of us, there's decades of untraining, but certainly starting with the food behaviors that we've been talking about today and the blood sugar control and that mindful eating, that all makes a big difference. Like if you've just inhaled your food, of course you're going to overeat and then you think you're still hungry and it's this vicious cycle, right? So it definitely starts with those foundations. 
But what, what is the receptor that makes us feel full? It's the hormone ghrelin. Okay. Yeah. So we need those, we need time for our body to acknowledge that it's full. But certainly it's a different feeling as well for a lot of people, like especially if you've been eating a lot of refined carbohydrates, like even just breads and pastas and cereals, you're used to feeling quite heavy in the tummy. It's a different fullness when you're eating plants and proteins and fat. So there's a lot of adjusting to do. Yes. Yes. Satiated, not bloated, not in a carb coma. You know, you feel quite light. And that's a new feeling to get used to for a lot of people. But I mean, like any like any behaviour, it just takes practice. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Yes, exactly. So tell us, what are your top three tips for health and for longevity? Oh, my gosh, a whole food diet. Like <laughs> if, we, if we're not doing that, we've really got to, you know, take stock. That is the biggest thing. The biggest decision we make is what goes on our plate. So lots of plants, quality protein, healthy fats, and whole food carbohydrates, getting rid of refined carbohydrates I think absolutely number one yes two I would say meditate yes yeah <laughs> not a lot of people expect nutritionists to talk about meditation but I mean the, the, if you're into your research if you want your clinical data it's there it's been proven it would just we're just finding that a lot of people are quite um, resistant to it I think if COVID-19 teaches us anything it's yes look after ourselves and two start meditating to nourish your nervous system and look after your long-term health absolutely um, three, I think, ah, oh, it's such a tough decision. I actually think fasting for most people. So whether that's 12 hours overnight for a beginner or 16, eight, so a 16 hour fast every day of the week for a male, but maybe a couple of days a week for a female who's obviously not, you know, preconception, pregnancy, breastfeeding, etc. It's just giving our body a break from eating, from digesting. And certainly it's, you know, over extended durations like that 16 hours, promoting autophagy, which is that cleaning out of those dead and disease-like cells, giving our body a chance to heal. And and we're all eating too often. We're grazing, we're snacking. We need to create that window, that overnight window, and, yeah, acknowledge that it's a really great long-term strategy as well. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much for all your healthy tips and tricks on how to, how to stay well, particularly now um, with building our immunity through what's happening. Um, and I uh, appreciate your time so much, Steph. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow me on our YouTube channel, One Body, One Life, to see more inspirational videos to help you reach optimal wellness and longevity. But until next time, don't forget, you've got to nourish to flourish.